Beloved, this morning we are continuing our series on the Psalm of Ascents. And today we are going to see that we have a promise-keeping God. We're going to see this morning that when we vow to do great things for God, when we promise to do great things for God, that sometimes what we envision, what we want to do, is not what God wants. In fact, what God wants is something much greater, something that we cannot do in our own power. And we cannot do in our own timing. What we promise to God, he says, you know, that's a good intention, but I want to do something greater in my own sovereign timing. That's what God says. We're also going to see that when God makes a promise, he will fulfill that promise. But his fulfillment of that promise is going to be something far beyond what we would ever imagine. We're going to see this from the vantage point of David in his lifetime. We're going to see this from the vantage point of Israel and what they envision. And then finally, we're going to see it from our vantage point as New Testament Christians, that as you kind of see what God promised David and what David saw and then what Israel saw, and by the time God actually fulfills it, it's going to be something that no man could ever imagine. Please take God's word and turn with me to Psalm 132, the 132nd Psalm. Psalm 132, I'll give you a few seconds to pull that up or to turn there in your Bibles. And while you're making your way there, the title of this morning's message is King and Kingdom. King and Kingdom. King and Kingdom. What we see in Psalm 132 this morning is that David longs to build a house for God. That's the first thing we're going to see before we read the text. David was relentless to build a temple for Yahweh. But later, when you get to verse 6, the text tells us why. We're going to see that David wants to build a house for God, and then we're going to see why under point number 1. So point number 1 is David longs to build a house for God. And because the passage is long this morning, I just want to read the first five verses to you, where we see David's longing. The psalmist writes this, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Notice in verse 1 that the psalmist refers to David's commitment and sacrifice. Then in verse 2, it gives more detail into the sacrifice David had in mind. His sacrifice, what was this sacrifice? It's An endurance based on a promise. And what's that promise? What's that vow? Is that David made a vow to build a permanent dwelling place. A place for the Lord. Then in verses 2 to 5, what we read, this is a vow. That he would not rest until God's house was built. Now we cannot take David's words literally. Because David says, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. That's humanly impossible. Okay, Of course He's going to enter into his home at some point, even if the, if the house is not built. Of course, he needs to sleep, right? 
At the same time, he says, I will not slumber to my, or, or slumber to my eyelids. I will not give sleep to my eyes. He has to sleep. So if you take his vow literally, because the Bible takes vows seriously, especially in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, the vows to God are taken seriously. And David knew his scriptures. David was a man after God's own heart that we have to take this as a figure of speech. That David is basically expressing his devotion to God. He's he's saying, God, I will do everything that I can in my power. I vow to relentlessly pursue whatever it takes to construct a house for you. I'm going to, to, to gather the materials. I'm going to make the plan. I'm going to lead the people. I'm going to do whatever it takes to find the ark, to recover the ark of the Lord so that there could be a permanent resting place for God. That is David's heart's intention. Now, in verses 6 to 9, it tells us the story of recovering the ark of God. And that gives us the reason why is David so relentless to build a house for God? Why does he want to build a house for God? Well, first, in order to understand what's happening in verses 6 to 9, which is a retelling of an earlier event where the ark of God was recovered, you have to understand what the ark of God. In this context, this is not talking about Noah's ark. Okay, this is the ark of a covenant. And the ark of the covenant, the first time I heard about this was Indiana Jones or something like that. And so I have to remind myself that, that not to read Indiana Jones into the Bible, right? So if you're new to the Bible, the ark of the covenant was a chest made of acacia wood. The chest was then overlaid both inside and outside with gold, and it was the most important part of the tabernacle. What's the tabernacle? By way of review, the tabernacle was basically a moving tent. You can't find it at REI, okay? But it's it's God's holy tent that wherever Israel traveled, especially as they traveled in the wilderness, they would they would they would set up this tent, and this tent would would represent the, the dwelling place of God. That God is, is omnipresent. God is spirit. God exists in eternity outside of this realm. But God chooses to dwell among his people. It's, his, it's how he related to his people in the Old Testament. So he said, okay, set up this tent. This tent is to be holy. There's specific instructions for this tent. And in this tent, place the Ark of the Covenant, and I will dwell there. And it's holy. Right? And the Ark of the Covenant, inside this chest, there were three things. The most important were the two tablets of law. Because where the Word of God is, is God, basically, in terms of His communication to His people. God communicated to them in the Old Testament through the law. And so in this wooden chest overlaid with gold inside and outside, that there, was, there were the two tablets of law, but also in this Ark of the Covenant... It included Aaron's rod and then a pot of, of manna, right, uh, that was preserved in there. And so when Israel marched towards the promised land, they ran into a natural barrier. So you'll see this in the earlier parts of the Old Testament, where Israel is marching towards the land of Canaan, and they run into the Jordan River, right? And the Jordan River, this is not Michael Jordan, but this is a, a real river in the Middle East. My mind just operates off of food and basketball, but this is the Jordan River, and when the, with the priest carrying the ark leading the way, the river split into two parts, and the Israelites crossed over onto dry land. This is recorded in Joshua 3.3. 3. 
Now, Joshua 3.3, it says, Commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. And the river parted. So that's what happened. So the priests are leading. The ark of the covenant is being carried. The ark of the covenant is going before Israel. And the Jordan River parted in two. And God's people crossed. Okay, then somehow during the reign of King Saul, the ark was lost and forgotten. And that's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 13, verse 3. Now, why is this important? When you think of marching forward, you think of being led by the military. And that's a wise way to lead if you're not God's people. You're going you're gonna to send in the Marines first. Okay, you're going to send in your Marines. Army's last, right? Army goes, is that, is that right, Johnny? Marines go in first, right? Actually, the Air Force goes first sometimes, right? But anyway, you get my point. Military goes first. Military goes first because you're taking land. This is Old Testament conquest. But that's not the way with God's people. Who's going to send the priest? You're really going to send your pastors into war first? We're the first to die, of course, right? But who's going to send the religious people who don't have weapons? The priests aren't going to carry weaponry. And who's going to carry this huge chest? So the pulpit, some churches don't have pulpits, but the pulpit contains the Word of God. And imagine that we're going to war and you have the pastors lifting this leading forward. I think we're going to die, right, from a worldly perspective. But that tells you something that David understood. David understood that as the king of God's people, his might, his power comes with the presence of God. And the presence of God is, number one, communicated with the Word of God. And so whatever contained the law of the Lord must go first. And the leaders of Israel are servants and priests. And so if Israel is going forward, it is the servants of God leading forward, the priests, who mediate the worship of God, because God's presence means He's being worshipped. And the mediators of God's word in the Old Testament and the mediators of worship were the priests. And somehow, somewhere, the people of Israel in the Old Testament wanted to be like the world. They wanted a strong military. They wanted a military king, not a shepherd king. right? And they wanted so much to be powerful like the world. And David understood that without the law of the Lord, there is no true Reason to rejoice. Without the presence of God, there is no power. There is no true and better Israel. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and also recorded in 1 Chronicles 13 and 16, David got news that the ark was found. And there was so much joy in his heart. Because David knew that to serve the Lord, you need to be led by the word of God. You know, in today's world, when we lead the church... Oftentimes, the first things that are mentioned are business strategy. How do we solve problems? How do we come up with a philosophy? What is our vision? And I'm thankful that we have a high view of God here. That our distinctive is first and foremost to be biblical. And that we are to be driven by a passion for God's word. And that David understood that to lead God's people and to construct anything for God, it needs to be God's word first. 
And so David rejoiced when the word of God that was lost was found represented in the ark because the ark represented God's presence. And so he tried to transport the ark back to Jerusalem on a cart drawn by oxen, and that's a mistake. That's a mistake because that's not how you carry the ark. I already mentioned it to you. How is the ark to be carried? Who carries the ark? The priests. You're awesome seminary students now. The priests carry the ark in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, who carries the law of the Lord? Where is the law of the Lord written? On your hearts. Who carries the presence of God? Believers. Through the Holy Spirit difference as New Testament Christians. But in the Old Testament, the priests were to carry not oxen. You don't send animals. A lamb cannot accomplish what only the Son of Man can do. You're beginning to see what God wants to teach His people through the entire Bible. A lamb is only a symbol. Priests carrying a wooden chest is only a symbol. The tabernacle and the ark are only symbols to point towards something that man could not even envision during Old Testament times. And so David said, let's get our strongest work horses. Let's get oxen because they did not have Ford and Dodge pickup trucks. Okay, so let's get oxen to carry this thing. And, and what happened was the oxen stumbled. And so the law was going to fall. The ark was going to fall onto the ground. And a man named Uzzah, what a cool name, Uzzah. He tried to stabilize the ark. Who's up? Right, that's his name. That's what his, but sadly he died. He touched the ark and he died immediately because the ark represented the holy presence of God. So Uzzah died. And so what happened? Would you want to pick up the ark? Who wants to pick up the ark? Nobody. So they just left the ark there. They left the ark there for three months. For three months, it contained the holy word. No one wanted to touch the ark because Uzzah died. And somehow, for the, the ark, and I, I don't know exactly how, it was taken into the house of a man named Obed-Edom. Sounds like a last name of a basketball player, right? Obed-Edom. He's, he's, a, he's a 3D guy. He's one of those guys who shoots threes and plays good defense. Obed-Edom, University of Kentucky. Grew up in Nigeria, something like that, right? You want those guys on your team, okay? Obed-Edom. And it was the presence of God started blessing this guy, Obed-Edom. Seriously, when I kept looking at this, I just kept thinking Lamar Odom. (laughs) Obed-Edom. And it was the presence of God just kept blessing this guy, kept blessing this guy. And David heard the news. David said, whoa! The ark is with this guy, and, and this guy's home keeps blessing. Let's go get it. So David remembered finally. This is how we, we transport the ark. So he sent the priest, and the priest picked up the ark, and they were finally able to bring the ark to Jerusalem. That's the background. Okay, now go to verses, verses 6 to 9, and, and we read this with more understanding. Behold, we heard of it in Apaphrata. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord. Right? Meaning the presence of God represented in the tabernacle and in the ark of the covenant. 
Go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So in verse 6, it says, Behold, we heard of it in Epaphrathah, and we found it in the fields of Jar. Epaphrathah, this is a city near the district of Bethlehem. And they found the ark in the fields of Jar. And most believe that the fields of Jar refers to the district of, of, of a place called Kirath-Jerim. Can't even pronounce these things. And thus they searched in several areas and they found it. Okay, so David's search committee, they found the ark. In verse 7, it, it, it tells that the ark represented God's presence and worship. Notice the language of worship in verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us go to the place where the presence of God would dwell. And let us worship at his footstool. This is throne room of God language. You're, you're picturing the throne room of God, the heavenly room of, the heavenly worship room of God, the heavenly temple, and you're going before the footstool of God because we're so small that when we kneel, we kneel at his footstool. Then verse 8, it says, Arise, O Lord. This is figurative because the Lord doesn't need to arise. He's always there. He's always present. But it's, it's talking about arise, O Lord. This was an invocation asking for the Lord's presence. They, the Israelites would say this whenever they set out on a journey with the ark leading them. Arise, O Lord. May you lead us, basically. May your word and your presence lead us. And resting place would refer to God's chosen place of worship. Notice in verse 7, it says dwelling place. Then in verse 8, it says, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place. So there's the place where God dwells, and then David longed for a place where God's word, the ark, would rest. You and the ark of your might. Obviously, David understand that this was figurative, because you cannot contain God in a building or structure. This was all symbolic of how God chose to dwell among his people through tabernacling, then in the future through a temple. Okay, And then in verse 9, it says, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let me ask you a question. Is this possible? Where in the Bible do you see priests clothed with righteousness? Perfect righteousness. We'll come back to this in the application. Let your saints shout for joy. So you're beginning to see God's idea of priest, God's idea of righteousness, God's idea of a house, and God's idea of saints is much bigger than anything David could ever imagine. And David longed to build a temple for God. Now we know that God would tell David, no, I don't want you to build a house for me. Your son would. But we know that's not Solomon. Solomon did build a temple for God. Solomon was the physical descendant of David, but Solomon was eventually unfaithful to the Lord. Solomon, now people debate when his repentance was or whether he repented, different views on that. But eventually, Solomon led the kingdom to be divided eventually down the line. Right. So at the end of the day, Israel needed a true and better son of David. But this was David's joy. Charles Spurgeon explained, quote, David could not enjoy sleep till he had done his best 
to provide a place for the ark, end quote. And so because the word of the Lord was found, David wanted to build a house. But God had a different plan for David, and we're going to see a little bit of that right now. So point number one is that David longs to build a house for God. But point number two is that God promises to build a house through David. In other words, David, you want to build a house for me, but I want to build a house not by you and not from you, but through you, through your descendants, through your line. Look at verses 10 to 12 where we see the first two verses of God's promise. Verse 10, we read this earlier, but it says, For your sake, sir, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So this is the request, and this tells us that David was the chosen one of God. David was the anointed one. David was God's chosen king. From David would come the Messiah, the true and better anointed one. Then verse 11, the Lord swore to David, underline a sure oath, meaning it's going to take place. It's going to happen because the Lord promises. And when the Lord makes a promise to us, he can't break it. He will never break it. He will never break his word. That's why it's sure from which he will not turn back. Underline that. When we make promises to God, we cannot fulfill them. When God makes a promise to us, he will not turn back. He will fulfill the promises. He will fulfill the promises. And that's why a lot of times we have to remember that we need to look and cling to the promises of God in our times of trouble. The promises of God, the word of God is the only thing that's sure. And this is one of the sons of your body. So how do you know that this is talking about descendants? It's very clear. Verse 11, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So right there, David knew this is not happening in my timing. Now I want you to pause there. Because sometimes when we say, God, I want to do something great for you. And God says, no, I don't want you to do that. Wait for my timing. Wait for my ways. I'm going to build it through you. And what if God says, I'm going to do it through one of your sons? And you're like, God... What? You're not going to do it through me? But I want to do it. I want the glory. I want the joy. I want to see it happen in my lifetime. And God says, no, 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 no. One of your sons of your body, I'm not going to tell you which one, I will set on your throne. And so David had to exercise faith that God would keep his promise. But God's going to keep it. right? And if your son, now here's a conditional clause, but notice the tension here now. In verse 11, this is a unilateral, unconditional covenant and promise. Because God says, I'm not going to turn back. It says, if your sons keep my covenants and my testimonies that I shall teach them. Right? Then you keep reading. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now, here's a problem. David's sons cannot keep the promise. They're sinful. They violate God's commands. They break God's covenant. Yet God can't turn back. He says it. He will not turn back. So can someone tell me how this is fulfilled? Just say it. It's Jesus. Someone said Jesus, right? You say Jesus, always the right answer. Jesus! So I I know that some people are thinking, where is Christ in this psalm? These words leave you hopeless. If there's not a Messiah, how in the world can God Make a sure oath to David, 
from which he will not turn back, that one of his sons will sit on the throne if your sons keep my covenant. Because there is going to be one son who keeps the covenant. But it's way beyond David's time. It's way beyond the Old Testament time. And this is what I mean when God makes a promise from the vantage point of David, it's beyond his lifetime. From the vantage point of Israel, they would wait a long time and see many bad kings before they see the king that they reject. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Right? Israel's leaders would reject their king because that's not the king that they wanted. That's what I'm saying. When God makes a promise, the way he fulfills the promise oftentimes is not how we would ever envision. And so you begin to see God's plan unfold. The beauty of redemption through Christ. Without Christ, the scriptures cannot come alive. The the scriptures are activated because every piece of scripture ultimately in some way points to Christ. Even if it doesn't mention Christ specifically in its original context, eventually how it's applied and how it comes true is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it goes back to verse 10. It describes David as God's anointed king. But in 2 Samuel 7, there is a promise that there would be a true and better anointed king. And this would be Christ Jesus who would come in his time. And that's the king. And that's the throne that God would establish. Now go to verses 13 and 14. In verses 13 to 14, you see two things. You see the establishment of God's throne, and you see where the throne would be established. First, it is the Lord would establish this throne, and secondly, it would be established in Zion. Right? So verses 13 and 14, uh, or, or we already saw that God would establish this throne, but verses 13 and 14, it says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it. For his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Now let me ask you a question. Something or someone much greater has to be be in view because how many of you guys believe that the physical Jerusalem is going to exist forever? It's not going to exist forever. There was a time actually in human history where Jerusalem was lost to Israel, right? Israel regained it. But Christ is not sitting on that throne right now. Christ is sitting on his throne. It's a heavenly throne. But Jerusalem right now is not under the leadership of Christ specifically. Right? Israel's true and better Messiah. So yes, the Lord has chosen Zion, but this is pointing towards a true and better Zion. And this is trusting, this is pointing towards a resting place of God that would be eternal and forever. Here I will dwell, and I, for I have desired it. Verse 15 and 16. I will abundantly bless, bless her provisions. Now let me ask, Are there people starving in Palestine now, in the land of Israel? Yes. So this is pointing towards something much greater than the physical territory and land of Israel. And in verse 16, her her priest I will clothe with salvation. I don't think this is talking about the Old Testament priest. Her priest I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. This is beyond the Old Testament, God's blessing on people physically, that there would be provisions for all. I will satisfy the poor with bread. This is not talking about communism or socialism. This is talking about the kingdom of God. This is not Bernie Sanders. This is Jesus. 
Okay, this is something that, that when he makes a promise, he actually has the economy to provide it. And he actually does math because he invented math, right? And her priests will clothe with salvation. No one can do this except for Jesus. Her saints will shout for joy. No society has ever achieved this ideal. This is a place of abundance where the poverty does not exist and the poor are satisfied with a true and better lasting bread. This points us towards a greater kingdom and a greater king, the greater kingdom of God and the reign of Christ. And verse 17, it brings David and Zion together. Now you look at verses 17 and 18. It describes the coming of Christ and his kingdom. I want you to notice three words. One horn. Any Rams fans in here? I am not. I know there's one for sure. And I love you, brother. I'm a Chargers fan. <laughs> Chargers will win the Super Bowl this year. That's my prayer. <laughs> horn. What does that mean? Horn represents power or might all throughout the Old Testament, the imagery. Particularly in the book of Daniel, horn represents power. Lamp. What does lamp represent? There are different meanings of lamp, but in this context, lamp signifies that Zion is to be a light for the nations. And crown. Crown speaks of God's king, obviously. But in the original Hebrew, there's something interesting here, and I want you to take note of this. The Hebrew word used for crown is not the same word used for a royal crown. The Hebrew word used for crown here, that's translated crown, happens to be the headpiece that is worn by priests. This is the priest, the hat that the priest would wear, that fancy hat that a priest would wear. It, it represents a consecration. And this is a consecrated king. So once again, those of you who have read the book of Hebrews, where in the Bible do you see a priest-king that is not named Melchizedek? Someone name him. What's his name? Where in the Bible do you see a king, a son of David, that's the priest that brings their clothes, everyone with righteousness, that his saints shout for joy? What's his name? What's his name? Jesus. We are not a church that preaches moralism. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot do any good works. We cannot offer any true and better, any true or good sacrifice apart from Christ. It is in and through Christ that all things are made new. And so one, Psalm 132 points us towards Christ and the new Jerusalem. Christ will have the power. Christ will, will be the light that brings light to the nations. And he wears the crown because he mediates true and better worship through his sacrifice. He fulfills the Davidic covenant, both in being the person, the son of David, and the son who obeys the covenant so that he can remain on the throne so that God's people could see this promise come true one day. And so the big idea this morning is the trust in the Lord who promises an everlasting kingdom under the reign of King Jesus. That's his name. 
That's his name. The name of Jesus Christ. Now, when we pray, there's many ways to end a prayer. There's some people, they say, in his name we pray. In the Lord's name we pray. I make it a name. Now, that's not wrong. Don't want to be legalistic, but I make it an aim. An aim to say, in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Christ we pray. Because that's the only way, God, we have access to God. I mean, for us to be bold about anything is not to be bold about our plans. It's not to be bold about our intelligence. It's not to be bold about our, our works. But it's to be bold about Christ. Because our confidence is in a God who keeps his promises. And that promise is sure because of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is our king. He is the king that David longed for. Now I want to talk about this permanent house. Now Solomon built a house. It was beautiful. It was an awesome house, but it was temporary. It fell. So how does this passage apply to us? Number one, this passage teaches us that true worship, true worship happens in our hearts and through Christ. Okay, but secondly, that God is a promise-keeping God, but I want you to see this come alive. Now, this is not what the psalmist is teaching. This is application in the New Testament. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. When we get to our series in October, we're going to preach through this on week number 3 of our building series. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. I want you to read this through the lens of Christ as the greater son of David. I'll read a little bit more than verses 4 and 5. But I want you to see the spiritual house and the temple that God had in view. I want you to see the priests clothed in righteousness that I think God had in view. I want you to see something that David never envisioned would happen. Remember, the context of Psalm 132 is worship. Worshiping a promise-keeping God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him for worship, a living stone, right? You're, you're part of this spiritual house. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through who? Christ Jesus. Let's break this down a little bit. Spiritual house. David wanted to build a house for God. And God said, David, the house where you want me to rest. The house where the, the law of the Lord would, would temporarily dwell. You can't build that house. Only your son can build that house. Only Christ is going to build that house. I, You want the Ark of the Covenant to rest. You want the law of the Lord to rest permanently on earth. And I like that. I agree with that. But I want to write the law on the hearts of men. I want the law to rest on the hearts of men. And that will only happen through your son, the greater son, 
Jesus. Okay, so so I, I like it that you want to build a house, but the house you want to build, only Jesus can build. It's a spiritual house. You want the priesthood to be clothed in righteousness and to be holy. I will do that through Christ to be a holy priesthood. And here, it's talking about all of us. It's talking about every believer with the law written on our hearts, able to offer spiritual service to God, which is acceptable because of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, it talks more about this spiritual structure. Verse 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion. Remember we kept reading about Zion? And everyone's thinking Zion Williamson, right? Zion Williamson. LeBron 2.0. If you don't know who that is, don't Google it. Uh, He's a basketball player that's supposed to be really good. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. A stone. Right? This is a different Zion. A cornerstone. Chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Alright, we'll stop there for 1 Peter 2. Otherwise, I'll end up preaching all of it. But you see why David could not build it? Because his people would reject it, the house that God wanted to build. And eventually, the descendants of David, most of them would reject the house that God wants to build. Right? Because God had in view a spiritual house filled with people. And he had a, a view of Zion that was very different. It was not one single place where God would dwell. It would be God dwelling in every human heart spread across the face of this earth. All who would believe in Jesus Christ. Bringing worship not just in one place, but everywhere. That's what God had in view. And eventually this earth is going to be renewed. This earth is going to be renewed by fire. So global warming, I'm, I'm not afraid of that. The Bible talks about the earth being renewed by fire. right? And after that, there will be a new Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth where we will worship Christ, our King, forever. Let's pray. Father, You are completely sovereign over all things. You keep your promises. And we see the center of your promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray, Lord, as disciple makers, that we would be first and foremost Christ-centered people. That Christ would be central to all that we do And Christ would be central in our relationships. And Christ would be who we long to become as people. Help us above all, as we think about our new building, to focus not so much on the external structure, but what type of people we will be in there. Help us to be people who proclaim stories of redemption in Christ, 
Help us to be Christ-centered individuals. Help us to love your word and to be able to read it first in its original context, then secondly through the lens of application through Christ. For there's nothing that we can do apart from you. John 15 says we can do nothing. Help us to prioritize you above our own pride. Lord, we have a lot of ambition in our life. We have a lot of goals. We have things that we desire from this world. Father, I pray this morning that if anybody doesn't know you, or if anybody's struggling with lordship, that you would help them to surrender to you now. That apart from you, as successful as we are, it's temporary, and we're going to run into problems. Help us to realize this morning that we need Jesus. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, that you would touch them now. Help them to come to you. Confess. Beloved, if you're sitting in here and you don't know Jesus, I want you to pray this prayer with, with full meaning. God in heaven, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Pray that with me. Father, I know that I can't earn it. That's why I needed Jesus. Father, I believe that Jesus died and rose again. Lord, help me to repent. Help me to become your child. Help me to live for you as your follower. Be my king. Change my life. Now, if there's some of you in here who've been living for yourself, and you want to come onto the Lord in repentance, I want you to pray this prayer. Father, Recently, I've been living for myself. And this world is full of stress. Lord, help me to surrender to you this morning. And pray this. Jesus Christ, I want you, not just as my Savior, but as my King. I want you, Lord, not just as a ticket to heaven, but I want you to reign and rule as the king over my heart and my decisions now. If you've prayed either of those two prayers, I want you just to spend some time as we take our offerings, surrendering to him, meditating in prayer, and coming before him because he is our king. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will do his work in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.